welcome to the How To Be Good podcast. We are back with another show. But it's pretty windy outside, so we seem to be getting everything at the moment. So we've had, what have we had this year? We've had fires, the start of the year, I believe. Yep. And then a couple of weeks ago, we were having floods over in uh, the eastern states. And today, we've been issued with a cyclone warning for parts of WA. So it's a little bit hairy out there. It is, it is. The wind is picking up and I think it's hitting the coast tonight. So hopefully it's not going to go too close to Perth, but up north, uh, I think people are worried. That's right. And, and funnily enough, after the podcast that we had with Thomas Mortlock, where he talked about the uh, one in 100 year um, events, events, we now have another one in 100 year events exactly as, as he spoke about and the the information that he gave us there that don't expect to have it only once in 100 years that's not actually how it works yeah indeed well we'll see what's gonna happen for the next couple of days and uh, what damages we we're going to hear about from uh, from further up north absolutely so we're gonna batten down the hatches hope for the best let's hope that people don't get hurt or injured and that they Heed the advice of, of DFUS and, and, and are safe and carry on being safe. So who do we have on for this week? So this week we have Laura Hamilton O'Hara. She is the CEO of the Living Future Institute. And they've been working with a number of companies and developers and builders to come up and help construct some of the most environmentally sustainable buildings to date. Mm, some really exciting projects uh, and uh, we can't wait for you to listen to uh, Laura. Absolutely. So let's get straight to it and listen to the show. Hello and welcome to the How To Be Good podcast. I'm here with Laura Hamilton O'Hara, CEO of Living Future Institute Australia. How are you? Hi, Gareth. Lovely to be here. I'm pretty well. It's kind of rainy outside, so it feels like quite a nice day to be inside having a cozy chat. <laughs> Excellent. I'm so glad. It's nice. <laughs> so could you take us on a little journey from where your career started to being the CEO of the Living Future Institute Australia and being one of the leading authorities on sustainability? Sure. I always sort of struggle with these kind of questions because it, it kind of sounds like you've got everything together when you explain it in reverse. But of course, <laughs> the experience itself was pretty squiggly and it certainly didn't have this through line that is clear to me now. So I am South African, as you might be able to hear from my accent. Um, I grew up there and lived there till I was 25 and had a real passion for conservation and um, wanted to work in environmental law and studied law, um, except that I quickly learned that there was a lot to do about with paperwork rather than being outside. So that, yeah. <laughs> that sort of went off the table pretty quickly. Um, and I started working at a company called HIV Management Solutions when I finished my degree. And I was working in um, HIV peer education and impact assessment and really looking at that as a, as a huge problem in South Africa. 
mm-hmm. certainly at the time anyway, and had this parallel sort of conservation um, obsession and um, love of animals. And when I immigrated to Australia in my mid-20s, I was really trying to think about, you know, or what kind of career, what kind of career do I actually want? HIV luckily is not as big a issue here as it is there. And so for me, it, it certainly swung towards the conservation side, but still looking at sort of impact and how do you make the biggest impact that you can. And of course, the obvious answer was Taronga Zoo. Um, <laughs> so I went and worked at Taronga Zoo for a number of years. I ran their training institute and I was the community conservation manager and also worked on their impact grants for a bit. And then I came across um, an amazing organization called the Center for Sustainability Leadership, where I studied as a fellow in 2013, I think it was now. And the aim of um, the center or CSL, as we called it, was really to, instead of getting you know the people in power to care, let's get people who care into positions of power. So really trying to up the leadership skills of the generation and the people who really want to make a difference. From there, it was really a supercharged journey. Um, part of it was the network that that creates, but also it really helped me broaden my mind in terms of conservation. And it was very much a lived experience as well in that you can't just focus on saving a rhino in order to save a rhino. You really have to look at the entire system. Um, yeah. And my experience of that was absolutely true. So in South Africa, uh, you can't just look at sort of an individual species or, or an individual area without looking at, you know, who lives around there, what are their lives like, and and how how can you help uplift the community whilst also doing conservation. So really, that systems view of things. Yeah. Uh, after CSL, um, pretty much everybody does something quite quite drastic with their lives as is one sort of trend I noticed. So um, take on a master's degree or travel or, you know, quit their job, something like that. And I did a number of those things. My husband and I um, traveled around Australia for a year to get to know our adopted country. And I also did a master's in social ecology, which looks at the Mm. messy space between kind of culture and environment and economy and people. And how does that all sort of fit together? And when I got back, facilitated CSL for a number of years, and it was really that journey out of conservation, sustainability, sustainability leadership, and sort of escalating, you know, what are my skills? How can I make the biggest impact possible? I worked at Macquarie Uni for a little while, and then I had a small consultancy where I was um, doing some uh, work around sustainability leadership within organizations. And then this role came up, and I think um, sustainability is a pretty kind of small Uh, part of the, I guess, Australian landscape. And you know everybody in sustainability that works there. Everybody knows everybody, which is kind of great. And relationships are really important. So this role came up through um, an organization I had consulted to at one point. Um, I had also spoken at uh, Living Future Institute of Australia's conference one year. So really admired what they were doing, but had no experience in the built environment when this role came up. So I probably wouldn't have applied for it had a couple of people who I really trust and know and have worked with and who know me and know what I'm capable of and the work that I care about hadn't encouraged me to do that. And now it makes perfect sense because it is continuing my sort of drive and sort of impulse in terms of leveraging my impact and making the biggest sort of impact that I can. The built environment, as I'm sure you know, is responsible for a huge amount of um, the world's carbon emissions, so close on 40%. 
And if you think about every single thing that goes into a building and where it comes from and, and who worked on it and its entire life cycle, there's a lot of opportunities to create good. So uh, it, it was absolutely a no-brainer for me to take this role. And I've been here almost two years. Fantastic. So not to diminish anything else, I have to ask about the zoo because you, you've poked on sort of a dream that most people tend to have is like working in a zoo. You know, I, I had it when I was young. I'm pretty sure my wife had it as well, didn't you? So, I still have it. Still have it. <laughs> <laughs> so just, just to pander to our curiosity, tell us a little bit more about the work in the zoo and also what was your favorite animal? <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've been asked that last question. I bet, um, I bet it's very common. But. <laughs> it's very common. Um, and I, I definitely have different answers depending on how, you know, what mood I'm in. Uh, but my most mm-hmm. common answer is probably a giraffe. I, okay. I have a great deal of respect for giraffes. I think they're incredibly calm and, and graceful, but they can, they can certainly yes. defend themselves when they need to. I love that they can see really far. They can see up to a kilometer. And there's something Mm -hmm. about that kind of calmness and and being able to see far that I try and channel when I'm having like a a really stressful day, just be a giraffe, be a giraffe. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I also just think they're so symbolic of home for me. The sort of very beautiful sunset imagery and that I've experienced many, many times and you see it on basically every David Attenborough picture everywhere, you know, giraffes and a a whole lot of giraffes together is called a journey. So a journey of giraffes, you know, at sunset walking along a a hill and and they're in silhouette and gosh, the world is a beautiful place when you get to see those things. So certainly a giraffe. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, and working at Taronga Zoo, I mean, Taronga is a very special um, zoo. It's situated right on the harbour side of Sydney. Uh, it's the yeah. zoo with a view and the giraffes have possibly the best one. Um, it's a magical, <laughs> magical place to work uh, for lots of reasons. One is you get to be part of enormously beneficial conservation programs. I think as wild spaces become uh, more and more separated from each other, wild, the wild and, and zoos are not, in fact, two different places. They're a continuum on the same conservation sphere. And um, zoo professionals nowadays have enormous skills in managing small populations and thinking about how do we um, make sure that their genetic integrity is preserved. And that yeah. is really helping to inform conservation in the wild as well, not to mention you know, rehabilitation and reintroductory programs. So that's pretty special. But easily the, the best part about working at the zoo was as you come down the hill at Taronga, there's, there's the giraffes, as I said, and the amount of days where you got to see a two or three-year-old wide-eyed looking at giraffes and realizing for the first time that, oh, they exist. They're not in a storybook. Mm-hmm. That's pretty special. Yeah, absolutely. So on, on a personal note, I still can't get over penguins. I, I just love the, <laughs> the silliness, the playfulness, and and yet the grace underwater of penguins. I think, yes, I think I'm probably empathised more with a penguin than anything else, but on above water in their clumsiness, I think. They're pretty great. So <laughs> they are. I love penguins. Anyway, <laughs> so tell us more about Living Future Institute, Institute Australia. Sure. So I think this is a story that probably needs a, a bit more of a step back. Um, we are actually an affiliate yep. of the International Living Future Institute, which is based out of Seattle. Uh, its founder was a, 
a wonderful guy called Jason McClellan. Uh, he's an architect and a bit of a visionary. And he... It's yeah, us, he's, it's he's us architects. We're very good at this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Are you an architect by any chance? <laughs> well, funnily enough. <laughs> <laughs> now that you mention it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Jason really was trying to think about um, you know the built environment and obviously it's it's one of those things like food and clothing the buildings that we make and how we build them really impacts and shapes our world um, quite drastically and has such you know tr- tremendous amount of impact whether that's positive or negative and he was inspired by nature's architecture and he would thought you know what if we could build buildings as as beautiful and as efficient as a flower or a tree? Um, what if if a building could, you know, generate all its own energy, collect all its own water, be completely suited to the place in which it's situated, um, is equitable, and you know anyone anyone can you know, enjoy that flower, and it's and it's beautiful to boot, and not to mention it doesn't you know mm-hmm. give off any pollution, so it's pretty amazing. So that I guess the what if statement is you know what if we could build as beautifully as nature does um, and from there the living building challenge was um, was born and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second but the living future institute um, really thinks about how do you create a world that is socially just culturally rich and ecologically restorative and that's the global vision and it uses buildings as a vehicle to create that impact um, as I said in the beginning, buildings, there's so many different ways in which you can positively impact the way something is built and maintained and, and its end of life that it, it just seemed like an obvious leverage point within the system. So the International uh, Living Future Institute uh, was sort of established, I think, around 2008. And then in Australia, the Living Future Institute of Australia, or LFIA, um, was established by volunteers in 2012. So it's been around for a while. It was largely mm-hmm. a volunteer-led organization until the last couple of years. We have an incredible board um, of really wonderful industry um, professionals at a high level who are really passionate about um, the building space and how do we show leadership um, in this sector. And we have a couple of staff members. I was, in fact, their first CEO and their first full-time staff member. So um, from from little things, big things grow, I think, as the, as the song goes. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and so thinking about the built environment itself and I'll go back to the Living Building Challenge because I think it's it's definitely the program we're most well known for. Globally, it is recognized as the most stringent sustainability standard in the world, as I said. So basically, it it is a certification scheme, but it's much sort of further beyond that. It's also really a philosophy and actually probably is going to fit in really beautifully with your podcast name. (laughs) The philosophy that you always come back to in terms of the Living Building Challenge is what does good look like? If ever you're uncertain about like what that. to do when you're building a building, <laughs> it, it's that. Come back to that. That's that's the first principle. What does good look like? And then building back from that, of course, there are categories. We actually call them petals. So we we use the metaphor of a flower quite strongly in in all the language. And so the categories um, or imperatives that you have to cover fall into petal categories. Some of them are quite expected like energy and water and materials but then we also have ones um, like place and beauty 
health and happiness, um, as well as equity. And it's an all or nothing standard. You can't pick and choose. You have to do the entire thing. It's also performance-based, so you have to prove that your building says what it does is true um, yep. over at least a year. And it's regenerative, right? So it goes far beyond sustainability. Um, I'm noticing regenerative sort of design and architecture is becoming quite a buzzword now. But I, I'd really yep. love to just say a few things about what it's about. And it, and it really is that, you know, it's not sustainable. Being sustainable is better than we've been doing, but it's not. It's not where we need to be either. We need to go beyond sustainability. Uh, something that's always stuck in my mind, um, Andy Ridley, who was one of the co-founders of Earth Hour, said uh, in a workshop once, if you described your marriage as sustainable, would that be a good thing? <laughs> and that's always stuck <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> um, that we really want yeah, beyond that. Yeah, you'd be quite that. devastated if that was it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We really want to go beyond that, right? So yeah. we, we want to be talking about regenerative design, which is design that is giving back. Um, it's not just, you know, doing less bad. Yeah. It's quite involved thinking about it like that. Um, some of the simplest ways you can think about it is um, in terms of the energy pedal, for example, a living building needs to generate at least 105% of its energy needs over a 12-month period. So, it's putting back into the system. It's not just taking exactly what it needs. And that's true for every element of the building. It needs to be putting back into the system. I really like the concept of, of the regenerative side. That, that really does, does uh, fit, fit well with where we need to go exactly. So there's a number of, of members of the Institute as well. And obviously, you mentioned the very um, high-level board too. But being a member... What does that provide? What does that give? There's a few reasons why somebody would want to become a member. Um, the most simplest one is that your values and who you are as a person and the, what you're doing in the world aligns with what we're doing and you want to support us as a not-for-profit. Another mm -hmm. layer would be you yourself, you're an architect, you might want to increase your skills uh, and learn about the Living Building Challenge. So we offer a number of educational courses um, as part of that. Then, um, Gareth, you might decide, actually, I need to build a, a living building. This sounds great. I'm going to build one. So Would in order to, to <laughs> <laughs> in order to dig, you know, dig into what does that actually mean? Um, so looking at the pedal handbooks and things like that, um, you need to have membership to be able to really go right into the detail. So part of it is alignment with your values. Part of it is learning. And the other part, I guess, is creating. How do you actually build one of these buildings? That's fantastic. So, there's so, there's so the memberships are all for personal and for business as well. So so both forms can interact. Is that right? Fantastic. That's right. Yes. Um, so we have quite a lot of corporate members, and they're often businesses that are in some way connected to what we're doing. They might be developers um, who are building living buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, Phrases is a really good example. Or they might be manufacturers. Absolutely. So some of the manufacturers are really looking at you know circularity and materials transparency and. Um, carbon, you know, carbon neutral, and all of those kind of things, in really quite progressive ways, and so they want to align their brand with what we're doing as well as you know, be part of a living building. So, with the manufacturers, do you have a certification for their products? That's right, we do. It comes again; it comes out of the International Living Future Institute. They um, develop and run all the certifications. We, for manufacturers, um, we've got this label called Declare. So it 
Declare is all about materials transparency. And if you can just imagine it, like imagine a Vegemite um, jar and on the Vegemite jar, there's a label that goes on it and it tells you, you know, what's in it exactly, all the ingredients and where did it come from? It might even tell you things like, can it be recycled? That sort of thing. The Declare label is exactly that except for materials. So it will tell you where it came from. It'll tell you every ingredient that's in it. And then it will tell you what happens to it end of life. Is it all recyclable? Does it um, have to go into landfill? What exactly can happen to this particular product? And part of the sort of rationale behind that is around materials transparency. For so long, you know, we don't know what's in the things that go into our, our homes, the places that we spend so much time and, and space with where we raise our children. And the idea behind the Living Building Challenge, as I said, what does good look like? How that translates in terms of materials and materials transparency is we should be putting things in our buildings that have no chance of causing cancer, not less chance, no chance of causing any kind of health <laughs> problems. And so being transparent about what's in your ingredients is a way to help shift the market towards that. Um, we we have a whole list of, um, we call them the red list. It's kind of like the naughty list for Santa, but the red list of things <laughs> that you cannot put in your building um, because they've got proven um, negative health effects or they might bioaccumulate. So um, when they're present in lots of different things, they get they get washed down rivers and cause quite um, damaging impacts in terms of biodiversity. So it's looked yeah, at from, yeah. from multiple levels. So you talked about the Living uh, Future Institute touching on the building side of, um, the, I suppose, the circular economy. Are you uh, at any point touching the food and the fashion industries at all in, your, in the buildings that you are obviously creating or certifying? Definitely not in an obvious way. I think the philosophy could be applied to those um, two areas. Uh, again, food and fashion are, are probably, mm -hmm. along with buildings, the most sort of impactful industries. In terms of food, yeah. one of the imperatives as part of the Living Building Challenge is around urban agriculture. So you have to dedicate a portion of your site to urban agriculture, and that's around uh food resilience. Um, so there's that piece of it, but it's it's not there isn't a standard for food or um, fashion. But they, they could be the same the same principles could apply to it for sure. Yeah. Uh, you have some strategic partners involved. What are their roles and how are they helping to create a more sustainable future or regenerative future? <laughs> So we are a for-purpose business. Um, we generate most of our income through um, corporate sponsorship as well as membership and events. So our, our partners are, are our sponsors. And the way um, that we sort of foster that partnership relationship is the organization needs to be very much on the journey in terms of regenerative design. They need to be doing things and showing continuous improvement in that um, to be a partner. I think one of our biggest roles in the market is around market transformation. Um, so we don't work with perfection. In fact, I would argue that perfection doesn't necessarily exist, but we work with those that are really committed at a fundamental level to move the dial forward. And that could look like, as I said, developers or manufacturers, or maybe even some consultants who have got some deep specialist skills in terms of building a living building, and they want to be known for that. So all of our strategic partners are working in some way in the kind of complex ecosystem of the built environment and doing their bit of good where they are. 
Excellent. You're not, not going out to Exxon Mobile anytime soon then? <laughs> um, it's unlikely, but, if, but you know, they, they, they could transform. You never knows? know. <laughs> exactly. In fact, you know, it's those big organizations that have done so much damage in the past. When those guys flip, then you know, then you know we're on the path. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. So could you tell us a little bit more about the restorative uh, projects that you've been working on? Sure. So we don't necessarily build the projects, but we help them happen. We support them. And that's through, um, it could be through collaboration with other industry bodies. It might be through some technical help and or educational help. But we really sort of support those projects to happen. But they're driven by the project teams themselves. And there's a couple of really cool ones, I think, in um, Australia and New Zealand. Um, the Living Building Challenge, as I said, is a challenge. And there's only 27 fully certified buildings around the world. We yeah. have one in Australia and we also have one in New Zealand. We're a bit Australia, New Zealand. I'm going to, I'm going to call us a hotspot for living buildings. There's quite a lot of projects happening around here, which is amazing. Um, the two projects that I'd really love to highlight in Australia, um, the first one, which is the only certified living building in Australia. I was going to say the Center for Sustainability Leadership there, the um, Sustainable <laughs> Buildings Research Center <laughs> at um, the University of Wollongong. And they were an absolutely pioneering, um, building they i mean if you're going to be the sustainable buildings research center you, you want to be sure that you're absolutely cutting edge right so yeah. <laughs> so they used the <laughs> yeah so they used um that as a, as a good reason to really build this at which was at the time absolutely pioneering um they started thinking about it in sort of 2012 i think um so really early days they also have used the building very much as a, as a research center for kind of experimenting with new techniques and, and building methods. So it, it's the, the word living lab or the words living labs thrown around quite a lot at the moment, but they really are a living lab and they, their whole building is used to figure out how to do things, which has been incredible. And every living building sort of makes it easier for the next one to happen because you are transforming the supply chain and you're increasing skills. And you're also, um, I think, you know, sure you come out with a building, but you also come out with a whole lot of people who are transformed by the process of building this building because they've worked with a framework that is so holistic and you can, it's hard to unsee, like once you know, you know, and the responsibility comes from knowing that you know, and you can't unsee it. So every project from then on has a bit of the spirit of the living building challenge. So SDRC is pretty special, I think, because they were the, the first in Australia and because they're so important in creating the future, both from an experimental and research level, but also because of the students that they bring through there, um, you know, every day um, as they as they kind of educate that next generation, um, they're literally creating the future. So that one's pretty special. I'd say the next one I'd love to highlight is Burwood Brickworks. Um, Burwood Brickworks is yes. a shopping centre down in Melbourne. It just um, really did a, an incredible job sweeping a lot of the architectural awards this year. Um, it is it is a remarkably beautiful shopping centre and it was developed by Fraser's Property who worked with us on a living building challenge um, competition to design that um, particular building. And it, yeah, I hope, you, I hope you get a chance to go and see it because it really does help you understand what a living building is. It's an incredibly efficient, technologically cutting edge building, but it's also 
Um, it's also really beautiful and full of light and design. It has almost 200 different um, reclaimed materials within that building. Fantastic. And that goes from all kinds of different things from there was a pier that was salvaged off the Sydney Opera House um, and that's now installed as seating within that building. Uh, there's all sorts of like floorboards and bricks. Um, as the name might suggest, it used to be an actual brickworks and um, they managed to actually find a whole pallet of bricks that were produced there and mm. they've put that back into the building and they also got cool. um, some bricks from a dismantled house and church in Turak um, and that they've also incorporated in that building as well and then they've done really beautiful clever things like um, the formwork that uh, was was part of the construction they've made this incredible sculpture um, above a travelator so what is, what is waste and, and how do you make waste beautiful and waste is only waste when you waste it it's just like they're really yep. rethinking what materials are about. And then, of course, they've got that urban farm on the roof as well. And millions of people are going to go and visit that centre. So um, I get to really experience, you know, what, what is a living building. I was going to say, also, I think what should be amazing is the likes of, of the Brickworks is going to lead a bit of a path and a bit of a competition for the likes of Centre Group or, or Westfield, as they're known, and vicinity centres as well to sort of say, okay, hang on, we've got to step up our game now. If we want to be known to be in this space, then they're going to really need to go that next level rather than sort of pay a little homage to it, as, as has been so much of the case before. Yeah, that's that's right. And part of the role of every living building is to set the bar and set the standard and and prove that it's possible, right? Um, I'm not going to kid anybody. It's hard, but the buildings exist, so it is it is possible. And each one of them kind of creates a little a little pathway um, to make the next one much easier to happen, as well as I said. So, um, yeah, it really ups the game for ups the game for everybody else um, once it's demonstrated as being possible. I'd just love to just talk about one other project, which is in New Zealand, actually. Um, it's the uh, Tukurafare, which is a Maori um, cultural center. And it was built as a form of, I guess, restorative justice when the Crown um, paid reparations to the local uh, Tuhoi Maori. And they decided to use some of that money to build uh, Tukurafare, which... Uh, which is really kind of the best example, I think, of the equity petal. And they thought about, you know, how do we build a building that restores our stories and our culture and creates a center for our community? And that building is every inch just beautiful and inspiring and thoughtful and the, you know, the story and the heritage of the, of the local culture is just on every single wall. And you can't help but sort of beam with pride when you, when you see that actually a building can be more than a building. It can be so many things to so many mm -hmm. people. And, and that one is, is a really great example of that, I think. That's fantastic. Are there any homes that are certified or um, one of the 27, you said, 27 or 28 in, in the world? Yeah, so homes are probably one of the most common um, living building challenge buildings. Um, most of the homes that are certified, there's none in Australia or New Zealand, but most of the ones that are certified are in the US. Um, and uh, in, in some ways, homes are slightly easier. They're kind of uh, a much smaller space. 
and the people who are building them are often you know, individuals or a family or something like that. And so the will to see a project that's hard like that go all the way through really relies on the, the family's values or the person's values. And, and that's often easier in some ways than um, somebody who has to make a, a commercial or development case for something like that. Um, that that can be a bit harder, and and you know one one home is one thing, but like a shopping centre, they essentially had to do almost forty six living building challenge projects because they had to take all their tenants through the journey as well. Um, so yeah. they made it yeah. super hard for themselves. But yes, there are many many homes. Um, Jason McClellan's home, which is on Bainbridge Island, um, he I think he finished building it about a year or two ago. He has got pedal certification and is going for full living building challenge as well. Fantastic. So let's say we were going to build a house, which funny enough we are, but that's, that's, that's besides the point. And we wanted to, we wanted to try and make it, um, and, and get it through the, the living building challenge. What, what would be our process? Would it be the first thing we need to do is come and talk to you guys and say, guide us where are we going with this is that early up before development applications all that kind of thing it does help to start as soon as you can thinking about the living building challenge so before you put in a da application what is most commonly done is um, people gather together as many people as possible that they want to work with so it could be their architect and um, we've just been working with a team who are working on a, a wellness project and they brought together for their first workshop, you know, architects, builders, their chef, um, that, you know, there's many people who are going to be part of this vision as possible. The more people on board, the easier it is because the living building challenge isn't a set of decisions you make at the beginning. It's something you have to do the whole way through. And so the people who are on the ground, um, the builders who are making decisions every day, they need to be part of that that process as well. So the very first starting point is understanding why you want to take on the living building challenge. And I think a healthy sense of determination to do so because it aligns with, you know, what you believe is helpful. And the second step is gathering your team together and um, having a, a workshop around, you know, the ideas and imagining what this could look like given what you want to build, why you want to build it and your local context. Um, so where is this the place in which you're building? Um, and then you might look at, you know, really sort of drawing things up architecturally. Gareth, you seem to be, you'll know that bit. It'll be, it'll be easy for you. And then doing your <laughs> DA application, registering um, your projects. Once you've registered your projects with the International Institute, um, a number of things happen, one of which is you get three coaching calls. So what you might do is have a look at the, the pedal handbook, look at where you think you might get stuck in terms of the pedals, what might be challenging, and then come to your coaching calls with some really good questions about, you know, how might you handle this, that, or the other thing. Um, and then and then you break ground and off you go. <laughs> I made that sound really easy, but <laughs> if if it was that easy, it'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Um, well, I'm pretty sure Anchor and I will talk about this later and decide <laughs> make a, make some kind of decision whether whether we want to attempt to that route and whether we financially perhaps can or not. I don't know. I assume there's some financial implications um, with going down this route, although perhaps the payback 
is over the years of, of running and owning the building. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I didn't realize that, um, are there any homes? I didn't realize that was a loaded question. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> no, that, that, um, was, that was completely off script. And I just think we picked up on something that both Anchor and I are very interested in. So. <laughs> nice. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. There is an additional cost hit, but there is a payback period. Um, and we're increasingly being able to gather the data for that sort of thing. Um, it comes with, of course, having uh, an ultra energy efficient home where the electricity is all generated by renewables, which you own. So, you you know, you never have electricity bills ever again. Your water usage is incredibly cheap. Your heating is incredibly cheap. Um, you've looked at all the water in terms of uh, efficiencies. So, you know, your water bills are incredibly cheap. You, you, so there's lots of bits and pieces where it pays off and particularly over time. And as, as the owner of the building, you get to um, both spend the money, but also see the return on it quite clearly. And um, yeah. I think that one of the lovely things about the Living Building Challenge is it's all systems. Again, um, it's a systems approach. And so you're thinking about things like, let's talk about water there. Um, you know, you'd be thinking about obviously shower heads is a really good example of where you, know, you could save a whole lot of, of water just with shower heads. But if you think about the impact of, you know, a 20% less water shower head, that means 20% less water to heat, which means a smaller heater, which means less energy that needs to be generated, which means less solar power. And they have all these knock-on effects. Um, so really thinking about your building as a, as a living system and what would a living system yeah. do? So you also own a consultancy uh, company as well. How does that tie in with the work that you do for the Living Future Institute? I will say it doesn't from a perspective of um, <laughs> I do have a consultancy, but I have not used it um, while I've had this job. Definitely no being a CEO, <laughs> no time, no time at all. Um, but how I used it beforehand, I think, was really, really relevant to um, getting this job. It allowed me to pursue a lot of side projects and things that I was interested in, collaborating with people that I loved working with. Um, so even though I had you know, a full-time job at the university or at the zoo or wherever it might be. I got to do these really interesting side projects. And in fact, quite a few of the people that I work with now, I met through doing those side projects as well. Um, so I think just following a bit of curiosity and doing work that you care about and the consultancy enabled me to do that. Fantastic. So would you say that sustainability measures in the industry are moving forward and also are they moving forward in the pace that we need them to move forward? And this is a general question across uh, building and construction in Australia. It's a tough question to answer in lots of ways because you, I, I'd love to say there's this beautiful like hockey graph that you can show that it's really, you know, accelerating, but change never happens like that. Um, it happens in pockets of mm -hmm. excellence and then suddenly it's a, you know, a 10 year overnight success. Um, and, and I feel like that's sort of what's going on here as well. We're seeing some incredibly ambitious projects and I'm sure you would have seen the Atlassian building that um, was announced recently. Um, they're, they're doing some amazing things, but um, we're seeing a huge increase in commitments around net zero from all sorts of different organizations. Um, but we know 
we know the science and we know what we have to do. We know that we have to halve our emissions by 2030 and we know that we have to get to net zero by 2050. We also know that mm -hmm. half of all the buildings that are going to exist in 2050 are yet to be built, right? We also yeah. know that we can't just start, you know, buildings don't happen overnight and we can't just be doing business as usual up to 2030 or 20, you know, 2049. We have to be doing these things now. You know, I sort of use this example of you can't eat cake all week and then you have a salad on Saturday and expect <laughs> to have a healthy life. It just doesn't work like that. You kind of, you have to be doing these things now. And so in pockets, as I say, we're seeing incredible, incredible things. I'd love to see a more consistent, um, so great that we have these showcase projects, but I'd like to see um, more, more of a consistent approach from the industry. I think it would help to have a countrywide vision about us sort of reaching net zero by 2050. I think that would certainly help uh, give the indications to industry that we need. And in saying that, I would also say that I've experienced change can happen really quickly. I grew up in South Africa, as I said, and lived through the transition from apartheid to a democratic country. And, you know, there were decades of fighting and advocating and um, a lot of work that went into the change. But it it went from being one thing to another thing very, very quickly. And so I feel like mm -hmm. these amazing pockets of excellence they could tip um, from from one year yeah. to the next. Um, I think the bushfires certainly helped that. I think COVID has, has accelerated that as well. Um, so it, it's hard to predict because it's not going to be a linear thing, but we're certainly seeing movement in that direction. Whether it happens fast enough, that is the million-dollar question. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's one that many of the people that we've spoken to have said that we can do it. It's just whether we do it in time. And and I don't think there's as much confidence that we do it in time as there is that we can actually do it. So. Yeah. In some ways, it's an inevitability, to be honest. Um, I think just from yeah. things like energy efficiency, there's there's a cost saving. Things like um, you know materials and, and circularity, materials are going to be in short supply. So we, we're going to have to think about how to do that. So it's inevitable. It's It's all about timing. Absolutely. How are you seeing um, companies, private companies' willingness to meet and beat the legislated requirements for sustainability measures? Are you seeing an increase in people coming over to you to uh, adapt your building um, style? Are they interested in the certification? Hmm. Um, again, patchy. I'd say um, certainly the bushfires and COVID have, have pushed that or have accelerated that. And we're getting a lot of interest in our different standards. And I think that's because they're um, what kind of intersectional, I suppose. They don't just focus on energy. Um, they're standards that look at, you know, climate change, biodiversity loss, gender equality, and also really prioritize things like local manufacturing, for example, because of the embodied carbon um, implications. And so when you're building a living building challenge or, um, sort of any of our certifications, it's really uh, looking at all of those things all at once. And so I think that's one of the things that makes it quite appealing, particularly right now. I'd say the other thing is we are getting a lot of inquiries um, this last kind of six months. And I think that's partly because people um, want to stand out and want to create a point of difference. And they're starting to see sustainability as an opportunity um, rather than a burden, which I find particularly exciting. And 
you know, for many years, sustainability has been this like doing without. It's been really painted in quite a bad picture. And I think that's starting to be seen in, you know, technicolor now because there are so many opportunities um, in terms of, of the, the, what you can do, but also getting there. Um, is creating not only, I guess, a future where it's livable, but it's also pretty beautiful as well. And I think the more we hear the stories of what's possible, the better, to be honest. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's where we're at, the climate challenge that we've got. It's, it's our greatest challenge, but it's also our greatest opportunity that's been around for a very, very long time, the, the, the way... I personally see it, and and I've I've read some others that, that see it in a similar a similar way. How do you see the future of sustainability in construction? Then let's let's take I don't know. You pick your snapshot of time, and how do you see that moving? I think the industry knows where it needs to get to, and we are already seeing the early movers move, um, which is really exciting. I think one of the things that's driving that and one of the things that's given me quite a lot of hope at the moment is we're seeing the money shift along with that too. So um, impact investing has really grown a lot, particularly in ESG, um, Environmental Sustainable Governments. And I, I think I'm sure there's there's a very famous cliche around like follow the money and the, the money is definitely making a move to sustainability in a way that it hasn't been before. And part of that is yeah. opportunity, of course, but part of that is risk when we're seeing things like boards having to report on climate change, insurance companies taking climate change on board. Yeah, that That's really been quite a big shift um, in, in what's been happening. It's not a fringe issue anymore. I think things like energy efficiency um, are going to continue to be incredibly popular. They're a kind of an easy political message to get across. And they are incredible. It is really important and it does make a tangible difference to people's lives, not only in the comfort level of homes, but also in, you know, how much money they can save. And, and that's, that's really important. So that's going to continue to, to grow as will net zero. Um, materials is, is becoming um, really important, and that's partly because of the um, the, sh- the shortage that will happen and is happening in, in certain um, areas, but also because there's so much opportunity for innovation um, and bringing back things like local manufacturing as well. Um, so, we're, yeah, seeing a, definitely seeing a focus on that. I I think one of the things that I'd like to see more of is less wishful thinking and more like we, we do know where we have to get to and and actually like setting targets that are in line with what is reality rather than um, some magical number that you think is going to, you know, sounds ambitious. Uh, that's what I'd like to see yeah. more of um, is, is setting li- targets in line with that. And then sh- we, we may not know how to get there and we certainly don't know all the answers to it. But some of the best things we've done as a species have been exactly like that. And I I do think this is sort of the moonshot of our generation. It's actually probably beyond that. We didn't know how to, um, you know, get to the moon when that was was announced. But we had one clear goal um, or there was one clear goal was getting to the moon. And I think for us is one clear goal is, you know, how do we as a species thrive beyond climate change and um, how do we mitigate the effects? And, And I think... The first step in doing that is accepting where we currently are and, and the circumstances that we're currently in and acting from that place of knowing rather than applying some magical thinking. Um, 
I, yeah, I don't think that's going to get us anywhere. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> Where can people go to find you? Sure. So Living Future Institute of Australia um, is where you can find me. Otherwise, certainly on LinkedIn. Um, I'm not on any of many of the social media platforms. I'm on Twitter. I think that's about it. Um, but I generally try to stay off the, uh, the socials. <laughs> Understanding the climate emergency, what keeps you up at night? I think on a big picture level, I think the thing that um, really sort of worries me and makes me uh, upset, I suppose, is the the fact that the people who are most impacted by climate change are the people who were the least involved in causing it. And just the injustice of that makes me incredibly angry. I think the other piece is going back to the magical thinking of um, sometimes it feels like you're going mad, right? Like, you know, you know that we need to be doing stuff about this, but nobody else is acting like it's a problem. And I think yeah. that long term has some quite serious um mental health issues for people in our industry. Um, so how do you how do you keep your head while those around you feel like they're completely going mad? Yeah, uh, and I can I completely sympathize on a, on a much much smaller scale. Just just at the weekend I went to the farmers market as I do most weekends and normally it's really good there. Everybody's bringing their own bags and boxes and everything else. And then for some reason last weekend there was plastic bags everywhere. Everybody was just picking up and I, I got genuinely annoyed by it. And it's it's how do we, we've got to understand that we're going to have days like that. We're going to have days that knock us down. But overall, it's hopefully and seems to be moving in the right direction. Keep on fighting. <laughs> on a more positive side then, what aspects make you optimistic for the future? I think it's almost the antithesis of what I've just talked about. I have the great fortune of working with an incredible bunch of people who are actively doing things on a daily basis to make the world a better place. And so I can see, I'm in a really lucky position that I can see progress, um, that I can see things are being done. And that that's hands down the thing that gives me hope um, in a way that Perhaps people who are less involved in our industry are not necessarily exposed to those good news stories every single day. So that, and then I think on a sort of um, more macro level, it's that piece around the money that the, the money is shifting and people are um, switching their super to ethical, you know, ethical investments and, and are looking at um, impact investing in a way that they've never done before. And so that that's a real change that I've seen in the last probably two to three years. Um, so that gives me a lot of hope yeah. too. So on a personal side, what are you implementing on your day-to-day -day life to create change? What am I doing? Um, lo lots of different things. Um, one of the most important things that I think I've been focusing on in the last year is building community. Um, so being really conscious of particularly being an expat how do you build and maintain and be active in in a community that is helpful and supportive and um, has your back I think that's really important from a mental health yeah. perspective as well so that that I'd say is one of the biggest things moving my money to um, super and, and a bank um, and I think probably one of the things that I'm really wary of about sustainability is um, 
when sustainability is absolute and you're either, you know, you're doing doing the wrong things and sort of, I guess, sustainability shaming or judgment around sustainability. What what we need is we don't need a few people doing it perfectly. We need everybody to be doing it as well as they possibly can. Um, don't let, you know, yeah. don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. Um, and so I'd rather see that, you know, millions of people in Australia doing a lot of different things than a handful of people doing it perfectly. Um, the other thing about sustainability, of course, is that there's so many different ways that you can take action. So finding the thing that, you know, you, that you're most passionate about, the, the best thing you can do is doing the thing that you'll stick to and actually do. And so whether that's, you know, cycling to work or, you know, eating less meat some of the time, whatever it is that you'll actually do, that's the thing that's important. So, yeah, um, so community, move your money and just do the best you can is probably the things that I've been doing the most of. Absolutely. And finally, if there is one thing we can change that will have a massive impact on the health of our planet, what would that be? How can we be good? Mm. I, feel like, I feel like I sort of jumped the gun and answered that question in the one before, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one thing um i think i think it's very much around finding the thing that you personally care about and some of us you know some of us would say that we care about sustainability but not everybody does but i think everybody cares yeah. about having a better future i've never met somebody who doesn't um and so looking at something like maybe the sustainable development goals is is a really good example i think it's like a smorgasbord of things that you could do and there's something on there that you will care about, whether that's, you know, health and well-being and good nutrition, eating locally and supporting farmers markets, for example, or gender equality or helping sort of um, your local community or working in conservation. There is something there for everybody. Find the thing that you love and just do that thing in terms of sustainability and just do it to the best of your ability. As I said, there's no there's no such thing as perfection. We need everybody to be doing um, good rather than perfect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very, very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to learn um, all that you're doing and the the amount of good that it's it's doing both here in Australia, but obviously globally as well. Um, it'll be great if we could keep in, in touch and, and understand some of the projects that, that you're doing in the future. That, that would be absolutely awesome. Yeah, sure. We've got quite a number of projects that are coming up. Um, and one particularly related to play that I think you'll enjoy when, when that gets announced. <laughs> Okay, I'll keep keep us posted. That <laughs> sounds excellent. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much. So that was Laura, and I found it really impressive how positive she was about the future, about sustainability, um, certainly obviously in, in the building industry. But also I was really impressed how she's saying a number of companies are now coming to her and Living Future um, Institute to to make and take action rather than being forced to perhaps by government legislation and so forth. Mm, indeed and I think there was another thing that she's mentioned through the interview um, about following the money yep. that there's a lot more investment in sustainable practices and it is good to know it's it's really looking like people are trying governments are trying yep. larger corporations are are joining in and are try, are trying to change this around absolutely so it's it's nice having that 
positivity. We get a we get a lot of, I guess, negativity and negative press and negative comments about how things are going bad. Obviously, there is a lot of things that are, are, aren't going in the right direction, but it is nice to hear some things that are as well. Mm, mm. So, as we get towards the end. It would be great again if you could follow us, check us out on our social media, and if your friends and so forth aren't following us, make them follow us too, because we need as many people as we can to get this out there. It's funded by you and you alone. So check us out, go to our website, www.howtobegood.com.au, and we also have our Patreon connection through there as well, and I think through our Instagram as well, and uh, help us keep going. Yes, and with our Patreon, uh, I don't know if you've seen our posts lately, but we've joined a Tree Sisters. That's right. Uh, we're working in partnership with the Tree Sisters uh, to plant as many trees as we can. So for every single membership, um, there are options to plant three trees per month, five trees per month, or you can directly donate to our um, How to Be Good Forest and plant as many trees as you'd like. That'll be quite a good one day to do a report from the How to Be Good Forest, which has all been supported by our listeners and our followers, and we can share what can be done if we collectively get together and, and, and create something good. Mm, it is ex an exciting project. Uh, we were really excited to join in with Tree Sisters and start sharing the information. And hopefully you guys are as well and you can help us to plant some trees. It is. It's a great partnership. So thanks a lot. Take care. Be safe. See you soon. Bye.